Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Like other people, I heard of the Imam of Peace. He has uh, a lot of followers. He has... Uh, he's made a great deal of impact. He gets a tremendous amount of attention, certainly in Australia, uh, where he is now. And I asked him a lot of questions about a lot of issues, and he didn't pull his punches. He was not politically correct in any way. And I will remember this interview when I've forgotten many others of the 90,000-plus I've done in my career, simply because of what he said, how he said it, and how he did not get politically correct in any way. He stated his views take it or leave it, here it is. So have a listen to the first part of the interview with the Imam of Peace, Imam Muhammad Tawhidi. Imam, thank you very much for joining us on uh, the program today. You're a man of great education, theological education, great intelligence from a very prominent family of religious scholars and Islamic leaders. And here you are tweeting, defeats do not turn into victories and failure does not turn into success. Islamists are intellectually defeated and morally bankrupt. Failures in life and hereafter. That's your direct quote. So how would you describe yourself and what it is you're doing now? Firstly, I thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to speak to your audience and my greetings to you and to your listeners. Secondly, with regards to Islam, it is very clear that it is in need of change. Not because... The majority of Muslims are a problem, but because Islam as a religion has been infested by extremists. And by extremists, I mean the people who wish to live like how Islam was 1,400 years ago in Mecca. That is not something compatible with the 21st century. And the terrorist attacks prove that. Islam is in need of change. And change has to come from within. If people like myself do not speak out and agree to accept the challenges, then Islam as a religion will remain in the same situation it is in. That's why I speak the way I do. Imam, you are known as the Imam of Peace. And almost invariably, when I read a tweet from you or I visit your website at imamtawhidi.com, I read something which, A, makes me think, and B, makes me think how sensible and how sensible for everyone your positions are. It gives people an opportunity to actually think about communicating with each other as opposed to talking past one another. So you do this, and you do it from the level of commitment you've just described, and yet your life has been threatened for doing so. Please speak to that. Yes, uh, in Islam, there is a culture that has actually been introduced from the Arabian culture before Islam. And that culture includes zero tolerance to any form of criticism. This has existed for a very long time. Uh, Arabs never really accepted criticism. And you can see this in their poetry, how they would speak so highly of themselves in response to people who criticize them. When Islam came to Mecca, it did not allow any form of criticism. Anyone that criticized the caliphs would be burnt alive, would be beheaded. These are not things we are imagining. These are things written in our most sacred scriptures and our most sacred books of history. So when a Muslim begins to criticize 
certain elements within the faith. The Muslim community doesn't really accept it because we were not taught that criticism is allowed from a very young age. Australia taught me that I'm allowed to criticize people the same way your society in Canada and in America at large teaches citizens that they are allowed to criticize each other because there's freedom of expression. In Islam, criticism is always met with harsh punishment because the very basis of that, which is freedom of expression, is not allowed. Therefore, we, there is a price we have to pay, and that is we have to be patient. Someone needs to pave the way because I believe that, that the West is worth saving. There's still a chance for us to save Australia, save Canada, and which is why I spent six months a year living in Canada. I stay in Toronto, I stay in Ottawa, and I do lots of parliamentary and political work on a social and diplomatic level, because I believe that these countries are worth saving. When you say that the countries are worth saving and can still be saved, it sounds like you're suggesting we're on the path to um, being, if not destroyed, then becoming an entirely different society from the one that we've grown up with and the one that our charter and our constitution defines and protects. Do you believe our countries are in danger? I do not wish to spread fear, but I would be very clear with you if I say that, yes, you have every right to be worried as Canadians, more worried than even Americans, more worried than even Australians. And let me explain why. Firstly, you are the neighbors of America, and America in all Muslim countries is seen as the great Satan. Now, because the American government is so powerful that these Hezbollah militants and the missionaries of the Iranian regime cannot get to America to push their interests so easily, therefore, their best option is the closest country to America, and that is Canada. That is why you have so many Iranian diplomats with assets, homes, businesses, properties in Canada. This is why you have organizations directly funded by the Iranian regime in Toronto, and the hundreds of millions of dollars, mosques are being built in strategic locations with highly qualified missionaries, the best Iran ever has, they have sent to Canada. And it's very important that Canadians understand that th these people are there in order to, to serve a mission, and that is to grow strong and eventually influence the, uh, the geopolitics of the entire region. What, what uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper did was the best thing he could have ever done in his entire period in office, and that was to cut relations with the Iranian regime. That was a very honorable move. And we see that today the Iranian regime is responsible for terrorist attacks globally around the world. And Iran, because I'm a Shia Muslim, I have to focus on my faith and not be sectarian. Shia Islam it can be more dangerous than Sunni Islam because they are more strategic and more calculated. The Wahhabi doctrine, the radicals that come from Saudi Arabia, 
They are passionate amateurs, but the Islamist movements within Shia Islam are very well organized. And this is why I believe that Canada is worth saving in the sense that these people are not yet in parliament, but they are very strong on a social level. Imam, what do you think of the prime minister of this country, Justin Trudeau, and his performance, and particularly when it comes to his dealing with terrorists? He's changed legislation in Canada. We've talked about this on the program, where dual citizens who are convicted terrorists can no longer have their Canadian citizenship taken away from them. He, uh, he, has, he said that returning ISIS fighters can contribute extraordinarily to Canada by helping de-radicalize uh, radicalized individuals. I'm sure you know Mr. Trudeau's history and performance uh, as well as I do. What's your view of the Liberal government and of this Prime Minister? The Liberal government is doing exactly what they are paid to do, not what they are elected to do. Two different things. They will tell you that we will do such and thing. They will make promises during the election campaign. But what they do after is exactly what their influences want from them. Justin Trudeau, with all due respect to Canada, is not someone that is qualified to lead a country. He is not. And we see that through his statements. We see that through his decisions. Uh, a prime minister needs to serve Canada, needs to serve his own people, not the citizens of other countries. This is the problem with Trudeau. And also, you will see that he is not taken seriously by any uh, top world leader. You will never find Russia taking Trudeau seriously. Even Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, the moment he surfaced to the public scene, he traveled to the UK, he traveled to America, he introduced himself to everyone that's influencing the world in politics but he did not visit Trudeau. Then, when Trudeau and his cabinet decided to inquire about human rights, they immediately withdrew their ambassador. These show you that Saudi Arabia, although might not be the best country on earth, but it shows you that world leaders don't really take this man seriously. No one can be taken seriously after giving a, a self-confessed terrorist over $10 million. It is very difficult, uh, and I say this from within my own capacity. Uh, based on the information we have, this is what happened. We saw Justin Trudeau give a man this amount of money. We've seen him turn his back on veterans, and this is very wrong. The best thing a prime minister can do is to strengthen the intelligence community and serve the military, uh, serve them with the best uh, uh, services possible. Uh, right now, the whole world does not take Justin Trudeau seriously. He is basically seen as an individual who only got there because of his surname, uh, not because of his qualifications or ability to lead. I do not wish to speak too much about Justin Trudeau, but I do believe that there are much better and much qualified uh, politicians in Canada than he is. Imam, what is your view of the Jamal Khashoggi murder? Why and uh, why with such impunity? I think, uh, firstly, we need to clarify certain things. Jamal Khashoggi was not 
the perfect man with the perfect ideology. He did have certain links to fundamentals, and he was at one point an armed man uh, who fought for a cause. Now, he had not been classified as a terrorist, but at the same time, we need to be very careful when speaking about this man. He has a history of being with many questionable groups. However, and this is a big however, Saudi Arabia did not target him because of his affiliations. They targeted him because he was an advisor for their top royal members of the family. He was basically their right-hand man. There is nothing that goes on within the Saudi kingdom and in their castles that he does not know about. He was seen as someone who could possibly threaten Mohammed bin Salman's uh, tr transition into power. And he was also very vocal. And what's more important than all of this is that there are hundreds and hundreds of Saudi dissidents and activists, but nobody really gives them the credibility that they have given Jamal Khashoggi. And this is what made them very, uh, they targeted him. He, he made himself, he put himself on the uh, hit list of Saudi Arabia. Now, there is no question whatsoever that Saudi Arabia did this. I know President Trump has a different opinion, but the reality is they did it. 15 men from Mohammed bin Salman's close circle take two private planes, go to another country, in, inside the consulate, kill the guy. Uh, look, it's very, very normal for such things to happen in the Middle East. These things happen literally every week in the Middle East. Literally every week. A week doesn't go by without such an incident where people are being killed and murdered. The only issue is this one, this very incident received uh, media coverage, and it did so because there was a political motive behind it. The left and the Democrats in, in America saw this as a good opportunity to turn it against Trump and to tell him, look, this is your guy who you've been uh, promoting. Look at what he's done. This is basically it. The assassination itself is very normal. This happens every single day in the Middle East. Uh, it's not something the Middle East are surprised by, but it's a good political game to, to promote right now. It's a good story for Turkey, and it's a good story for the left in America. This is why the coverage. It's, it, I condemn it. Uh, just because he has wrong views, it does not mean that he should be killed in such a way. Uh, the execution did not, uh, was not carried out after a court order. It was a murder, an assassination, a well-planned assassination, and uh, in the most uh, horrific ways. So there is uh, Imam Muhammad Tawhidi, the Imam of Peace, on uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And yesterday, Dr. Christian Luprecht from the Royal Military College and uh, Queen's University told us essentially the same thing. And he was in Turkey at the time Khashoggi was killed, um, Dr. Luprecht was. So this sort of thing happens almost regularly in the Middle East. In this case, it's gotten a lot of international ten attention because of uh, Jamal Khashoggi's Western profile, and particularly as a columnist with the uh, Washington Post. His father, Adnan Khashoggi, was at one time one of the world's richest men, and he uh, was an international arms dealer. 
We'll play more of my interview with the Imam of Peace when we come back. The idea when I sat down to interview the Imam of Peace, uh, Imam Muhammad Tawhidi, was not to go any longer than uh, 12, 13, 14 minutes and fit the interview into a half-hour segment. But we just kept on rolling and kept on asking questions. And uh, so it was extended. And I want you to listen to the rest of the interview. One of the things that I asked the imam about, which you'll hear shortly, is about the United Nations Compact on Migration. Not everyone has heard about this. It involves 190 countries, including Canada. The United States, Australia, Poland, and Hungary have opted out. I asked him about that. That's coming up shortly. But here's more of my interview with the Imam of Peace. Imam, I I have a question for you. And uh, before we actually started recording, you partially answered it for me. Your photograph on your Twitter account has been replaced by the photograph of a young woman. And I meant to ask you about a Pakistani Christian woman, I believe widowed, living apart from her children to earn some money. She was working in intense heat, I think in some agricultural environment. She was asked to fetch water for her fellow workers, which she did. She then drank water out of the same cup her Muslim co-workers were to use. And for that, this Christian Pakistani woman has been sentenced to death. And it is her photograph you now have on your on your uh, Twitter account. Please speak to that story. I changed my Twitter uh, profile photo and my Facebook page cover in honor and in support of this Pakistani Christian woman. And the reason why I did that was to send a very strong message. Uh, because I have a decent amount of followers, this comes with a big responsibility. I want to send a message that we are all equal human beings. I can drink from your cup if I'm thirsty, and you drink from mine. My house is your home, and your home is mine. Uh, we are all human beings, and when she is out there in the farm, and she's thirsty, and she drinks water, uh, it's very sad to see uh, her you know, being accused of blasphemy and insulting the Prophet Muhammad. Let me explain to you why this entire uh, issue took place. Firstly, in Islam, there is a jurisprudential law that says that the non-believers are impure. So according to Islamic law, anyone who is not a Muslim is filthy. And if a Muslim was to shake a non-Muslim's hand, they would need to go and wash it afterwards. Uh, Now, not all Muslims do that, of course, but this is a religious requirement. And part of the reason why Muslims uh, wash themselves, wash their faces and their hands and their arms before prayer, that is to enter that state of purity and out of the state of impurity while having contact with other people. Now, Asiya, she drank from the cup of the Muslims, which means now that the cup and the water has, be, has become impure, has become filthy, according to their ideology, according to their understanding. And when she objected to that, she's basically objecting to the teachings of Prophet Muhammad. And therefore, that is blasphemy. And you can see how easy it is in any Islamic government that someone can be sentenced to death uh, over a difference in opinion. 
And she's 22, a beautiful woman, just doing her job, feeding her family, ends up uh, with a death sentence for having a sip of water. This shouldn't happen to any human being, no matter what. shouldn't happen to animals. Uh, And the fact that Pakistan is always playing the victim card when people draw cartoons, when people cut funding uh, because of its failed, uh, uh, its failed counterterrorism projects, because of its harboring for terrorists. They're the first to cry and say, you are abusing us, you're, you're pressuring us, you're discriminating against us. And then when a, a young Christian girl wants to have a cup of water, uh, she gets sentenced to death and nobody has the right to speak. If I was in power, if I had the authority, uh, because I don't, I don't see myself ever being a politician, but if I had some authority, I would deport the Pakistani ambassador out of respect for human rights because of what these people are doing. Every month, there's someone who's being killed for, over a Facebook post, over a tweet, uh, just being a basic Jew or being a Christian is a threat in Canada. Uh, sorry, in Pakistan. And, and this needs to stop. Canada should actually continue uh, to lead the way because Justin Trudeau was inquiring about Saudi Arabia. Then he should also inquire about Pakistan. But I don't see him doing that because it's not in his interest anymore. It reminds me of what you just said, reminds me of a tweet that I took note of and actually wrote down. Uh, June 22nd, you tweeted, your religion is not a constitution for the rest of humanity. Um, Imam Tawhidi, what is the future for Islam in the West? Is it multi-generational war? Is it peaceful religious coexistence? What does it say when police and public officials in Rotherham in England are so concerned about being called racists that they refuse to step in and stop one or more reportedly Muslim rape gangs from attacking hundreds and perhaps more young girls, young girls who pleaded for help with the police, pleaded for help with authorities, who did absolutely nothing because they were too fearful of being called racists. What's the future of the West and Islam? I have a completely different opinion when it comes to these matters. I believe that the only government departments that could control this situation, they are the intelligence agencies and the police. Because politicians have failed. And let me tell you why they have failed. Politicians believe that if they maintain good relationships with the Muslim community, then they will have control over the extremists within those communities. And time has proven this to be wrong. When a politician visits a Muslim community, the mentality of the Muslim community thinks and says to themselves, hey, we must be doing something so good and we are perfect because the prime minister comes to visit us. You see, a visit by a prime minister to a Muslim community, to me and you, is seen as though the prime minister is just building his public relations profile. But how Muslims see it is that the prime minister is approving of everything they do and is approving of their mosque and is approving of their imam. Therefore, they don't see the need to change or to assimilate or to integrate. That need no longer exists. 
But the intelligence department have a completely different approach to this. They monitor and they take action when needed. So I believe we need to fund, uh, we need to increase the budget of our intelligence services and actually have a proper uh, departments that deal with uh, on, on a state level. So every city needs to have its own department that deals with the extremist elements. Now, uh, when you speak about London or the UK, there are more extremists in the UK than in any Muslim country. And I can prove this to you. You see, Hezb tahrir and Hezbollah are banned in the United Arab Emirates. They're banned even in Saudi Arabia. They're banned in uh, many European countries, but they're not banned in Canada. They're not banned in London. They're not banned. These are extremist groups that have a constitution that say they want a global caliphate. They're not banned in, in these countries. So London uh, and the UK is a totally different situation. They need, firstly, to, uh, to address uh, a very serious matter. Lon uh, the UK has over 100 sh uh, Sharia courts. Uh, more, they have more courts than the actual civil courts, uh, supreme courts. There are more Sharia courts than supreme courts in the UK. Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of mosques with no monitoring. Sadiq Khan says there are 800 returned ISIS jihadists in London and he has no idea where they are on Good Morning Britain with Piers Morgan. This is a problem. Justin Trudeau is exactly on the same page. There are returned ISIS jihadists in Canada and in fact he wants to bring more and they don't know where they are. Uh, so if you're asking me about the future, I think the future is very different and it depends on certain places. So the future in America, the entire American region, will be really good. I believe so. It will be good and I don't think it will reach the same way it has reached in the, U in the UK. The UK on the other hand, it's too, it's too late to deal with the UK. These extremists are in, are in government. I've sat in the House of Lords and I've seen them. They're extremists. They serve a different agenda. Australia still has hope, but Canada would be good. I think so. I really have hope that Canada will change because of the entire uh, the, the, the American politics and its influence on, on Canadian society. At least within the last two years, you will find that many extremists will not uh, be willing to enter that region as much as they would before. Now back to my conversation interview with the Imam of Peace, Imam Muhammad Tawhidi. This is how it ended. Imam, I have one more question for you. The United Nations has composed a compact of migration, which is to look after the orderly migration, they say, of peoples from all over the world. The United States, Australia, uh, Poland and Hungary have said, no thanks, our borders are our business, and the UN isn't going to compromise our borders. What is your thinking about the UN Compact for Migration? Is there an agenda behind this? The United Nations, in my opinion, does not serve the cause of humanity, in my opinion. The United Nations 
wants to empty the Middle East from men who are young and to bring them to Europe and to bring them to Canada and Australia and America. And the reason for that is to serve a bigger globalist agenda. And that is war in the Middle East for the petrol without any men to fight back. This is what they're doing. They don't care about refugees. Where were they in the 2003 war? Where was the UN during all the other wars? Why didn't they uh, request from the world to open its doors for all of these refugees that have been killed in the millions? Where were they before? You see, it's now that, that, that the agenda says, let us open the doors for these refugees. And it's such a non-organized uh, plan that even terrorists are now coming out and they're being stopped in Turkey, uh, disguised as refugees. Uh, it's very difficult uh, to sell this idea that he's a refugee or she's a refugee when she's wearing so much gold, when they come with the latest technology and the latest phones. Uh, they just want, they're economic migrants. That's what they are. An opportunity came for them to go to Canada and it's always Canada. Canada is the number one option because of the welfare system. It's very attractive. Australia is the same thing. Australia has a welfare system. It's very attractive. America doesn't have a welfare system. So they would always prefer Canada over America. Uh, and this is the issue. The UN does not serve the West or does not even care about the West. All what the UN cares about is it's is satisfying the people who are on the committee and the countries who, who chair uh, departments such as the Human Rights Council, uh, such as Saudi Arabia. And, you know, if Saudi Arabia threatens to cut donations, to cut funding to the UN, they will do whatever Saudi Arabia wants. And it's been like that since ever. So I do not believe in the UN as a solution. I believe every country should have its own policies and stand up to the UN and say, no, this is what we've been elected for. This is what the people expect from us. This is what we are going to do. When are they listen to the UN? The Canadians elected the government that they have. They did not elect the UN. Imam, in the 30 seconds we have left, are you concerned? You've had death threats over the things that you have tweeted and that you've written on your webpage and that you've spoken publicly as you just have with me. Uh, are you concerned for your own safety? Uh, yes, I am, but the police do a magnificent job uh, of protecting me wherever I go. And we have a great security team that manages everything, makes all the arrangements for me. Also, there are great airport uh, management staff that uh, escort me into certain uh, parts of airports where I can uh, walk freely and safely. So everything has been well so far. And, uh, you know, I have to keep going. If I don't speak, then who else is going to speak? Someone has to start this, at least on a local level. Imam Tawhidi, a privilege to speak with you. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you very much for having me, Roy. So there's my interview with the Imam. Now, the Royal United Service Institute for Defense and Security Studies in Australia, the think tank, uh, because there were questions about the imam's qualifications, did an investigation, and they write in part, the offices of the Grand Islamic Jurisdiction of the Holy Cities of Qum in Iran and Karbala in Iraq were both contacted in two separate phone calls, and after a detailed inquiry from their officials, Sayyid Mohammed Mahdi 
Tabathati and uh, Sheikh Mahdi Mash, who spoke in Persian. Uh, Farsi, it's been confirmed to me that Imam Tawhidi is an Islamic scholar known to the Grand Islamic Authorities and was ordained and pronounced as a Muslim imam by the Supreme Grand Ayatollah Sayyid Sadiq Shirazi during a public ceremony in Qum, Iran. It's also been confirmed that Imam Tawhidi is indeed qualified to represent Islam and the Muslim community and that his current credentials, which he was presented with by the Supreme Islamic Authorities, available on his website, along with the images of his crowning ceremony in 2010, are in fact authentic and true. It goes on to say that furthermore, both Grand Islamic jurisdictions of Iran and Iraq have rejected the allegations suggesting the imam is not qualified or recognized Muslim imam and labeled him as a, quote, eminent and erudite Islamic scholar, quote, unquote, that had graduated from their educational seminaries in addition to having delivered lessons in Islamic studies and had engaged in advanced theological research with high-ranking Islamic authorities for numerous years. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 